Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 218 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I was joined by a nuclear physicist and night photographer extraordinaire, Paul Schmidt. Paul is one of the first people I became aware of using an interesting night photography technique known as deepscaping, which we talk about quite extensively on this week's show. He's also a father of two and is busy working on a way to provide the world with nearly limitless energy through nuclear fusion. And so we discuss the interplay of his science life, his family life, and his photography life. I'd also like to learn, warn listeners that we eventually discuss our personal views on various post-processing techniques. So if that sort of thing bothers you, maybe this is not the week for you to tune in. Okay. Before we get started, I want to remind listeners that we have officially launched the and opened uh, submissions for the Natural Landscape Photography Awards. We are proud to be supported by Canon, Shimoda Designs, and Photospeed, and have over $10,000 in prizes to give away to the winners of the competition. You can learn more by visiting naturallandscapeawards.com. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, Paul Schmidt, it is awesome to have you on the podcast, my friend. How's it going, Matt? Thanks for having me. You know, it's going pretty good. I think uh, based on our 30-minute pre-conversation here, we both had a few beers, so yeah, I think we're yeah. doing okay. Yeah, socially lubricated. Yes, that that is um, sometimes needed. Very much so, yeah, especially uh, after a long day of work and managing chaos at home with the kids, uh, uh, a little beer is okay. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Well, crazy, man. So, you know, for people that might not be familiar with you and your photography, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thank you. So, uh, all right. Yeah, my name's Paul Schmidt. Um, so I live in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, and the reason I'm here uh, is because there's a machine in Albuquerque uh, called the Z machine that that brought me here. Uh, just so a little, little background on, on my professional life, I, I have a PhD in something called plasma physics. And um, so really all the plasma is, is what happens to any kind of matter when you make it super, super hot. Basically, you know, you've got atoms, they're made of electrons that orbit around the nuclei, right? Uh, the protons and neutrons. And if you heat up matter, a rock, a gas, a liquid, and you heat it up to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of degrees, those atoms start banging into each other hard enough that the electrons just kind of fly off. And then you just got this soup of positive nuclei and negative electrons just flying around. And this happens to be the state of matter that our sun exists in. Everything in the sun is plasma. In fact, most of what you can see in the universe is plasma. Very little of the matter in our universe is actually a solid, a liquid, or a gas. So I study basically, you know, what makes up most of the observable universe. What really is seductive about this field, though, is that one of the main applications of plasma physics is fusion, and in particular, fusion energy. So I don't know, yes. have you heard about fusion? Yes. Yeah, so, you know. I have. Uh, what's that, what's that um, Val, Val Kilmer movie with oh, Elizabeth Shue? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, that, that movie. I think. Yeah, that movie's all about cold fusion, which is a uh, total bullshit. But uh, but you know they use the word fusion, <laughs> yeah. and it's about nuclear, and you're yeah, like, oh, yeah. what's that? And you start you start going down the rabbit hole, and you're like, oh, that's really interesting. No, this this is but been yeah, a light- it's all about 
combining mm-hmm. uh, atoms instead of separating them, which is what fission is. Exactly. Yeah. So- and that's like apparently the, the the kind of holy grail of energy production, right? That's right. Yeah. So we're done now. We're, we're good. Uh, uh, let's move on to <laughs> photography. No, no, no. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, so yeah, a little aside is cold fusion wrecked the fusion field so bad in terms of, you know, just credibility because of the headlines it made, like premature headlines before anyone had replicated that now completely debunked work that even today, you know, decades later, when you say fusion, the first thing that people often say is cold fusion. Uh, so, so interestingly, I'm into hot fusion, which is the real, the real kind that works and has, you know, is firmly based in physics. Um, and so, uh, and so and it sounds right. cooler. Yeah. Yeah. Thermonuclear fusion is actually the full name and, um, you know, thermo because you get stuff way hot. Cooler. There you go. Right. Um, it, it's sexy. Now I, I'm not the Neil deGrasse Tyson kind of physicist who has to say I'm an astrophysicist. Um, I, I, I tend to think physicist sounds cool enough by itself, but, um, you know, saying you work in thermonuclear fusion does, does have a ring to it. So you're absolutely right. If you go, if you take anything, any element off the periodic table, that's heavier than iron. If you smoosh it together hard enough, the atoms will split and you'll get energy out. That's called fission. And the easiest stuff to, to, to fission is the kind of stuff you find in nuclear weapons. Um, you know, uranium, plutonium, on the light end of the periodic table, hydrogen, helium, if you smash that stuff hard enough together, instead of breaking apart, they'll, they'll combine and they'll release a bunch of energy. So anything heavier than iron, if you break it apart, releases energy. Anything lighter than iron, you smoosh it together, it releases energy. And hydrogen releases a lot of energy. Why that, iron? It's, it's a weird quirk of nuclear physics that I actually don't fully understand. There, suffice it to say, there are good physical reasons why iron, I think, is the most stable element in the universe. Uh, it's, it's very hard. You know, you can, you can transmute it, but you just don't get any free energy out, out, out the end. It's, it's about as stable as a nucleus can get. But anyway, yeah, so, so bang hydrogen together, you get a boatload of energy out. And what's great about fusion is you don't have a lot of radioactive waste to deal with. So if I take a couple hydrogen um, atoms and I smash them together, I get helium. And actually turns out helium is really hard to come by in, in the natural environment. Even though you fill your party balloons with it, it seems pretty cheap. It's actually pretty hard to come by because it's incredibly stable and doesn't exist naturally in a lot of places. So a natural byproduct of fusion is helium. A natural byproduct of fission is a lot of radioactive stuff that lives for tens of thousands of years and is really hard to get rid of. Um, And fission can run away on you if you don't design a really, really safe reactor. You got Fukushima, you got Chernobyl, you've got these catastrophic incidents where just this material sitting around uh, because you remove some material around it or added some material that, that made that configuration unsafe. Now you got a meltdown to deal with. Fusion's different. Fusion's hard enough to do that, you know, nature doesn't really want to let us do it. We have to be really, really clever with how we do it. And so, uh, so if you put that in reactor form, what it means is anything goes wrong, the, the reaction shuts off. It can't run away on you because it's just so damn hard to do. So, so I studied plasma physics and fusion is that sexy problem that got me interested in pursuing it as a career um, because it, it presents itself as this like holy grail of energy. You know, it's, it's way cleaner than fission. It's more energy dense and abundant um, in a sense 
than wind and solar, although I'm a huge proponent of wind and solar too, uh, especially because fusion is so hard. It's like a multi-generational problem. And in Albuquerque, we've got this thing called the Z machine. And uh, it, it's basically, so it's unrivaled. No one in the on the planet other than us have a Z machine. And what it is, is a giant capacitor bank. It just stores up a bunch of electricity. It's this warehouse sized building. And it, it sucks energy off the grid for a few minutes and charges up all these capacitors. And, and this warehouse-sized building full of capacitors at a key moment will release all of its electrical energy at once. And then Z's got all this guts inside of it, these transmission lines and switches and stuff that takes that electrical pulse and focuses it and compresses it in time and space and then funnels all that energy into a tiny little volume eventually where all that energy winds up is about the size of a pencil eraser for anyone who still uses pencils, <laughs> you know, or the size of a, of a, <laughs> of a die, right. Uh, uh, on a roulette table or I guess crafts table. So uh, in that moment that we've got all that electricity funneling through this, you know, pencil eraser size volume, there's more power flowing into that tiny little volume than if you had 10 planet earths sitting side by side in every power plant, on those 10 planet Earths all wired up to this machine at the same time. We have more power in that very, very brief instant of time flowing in that volume than the entire power generation capacity of 10 Earths stacked side by side. So you can do some really extreme stuff. I feel, I, I feel like uh, I feel like me and all of our listeners are, are going to have to sign a non-disclosure agreement after this. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. It's It's interesting. Um, so it, it turns out the the people that sponsor our work, the laboratory I work at, is one of the three um, Department of Energy labs that are tasked with uh, stewarding the nation's nuclear weapons stockpile, which has a lot of you know ethical questions around it. You're a scientist that loves nature, wants to you know try to contribute to solving the green energy problem or clean energy problem, and you're working for a nuclear weapons lab. And I'm certainly happy to talk about how I've made peace with that and, and decided to do really frontier science, knowing who's writing the checks and, and kind of over time coming to appreciate the, the secondary mission of that work. Um, but the, the really cool part of it is, you know, I get to do stuff that no one on earth can do and no one on earth has ever done, uh, see things and create conditions that no one but us are capable of doing. You know, it's an interesting phenomenon in science a lot of sciences are, you know, small scale enough and easily done. You know, a lot of the biosciences are like this. Uh, some of the, you know, science that goes into how electronics are made. You can do a lot of tabletop experiments for not a lot of money. And so if you wind up in those kinds of fields, you're in a densely packed field and people get scooped all the time. And it becomes really challenging to survive in that, in that kind of environment. It's super competitive. And I'm in this weird realm myself where we have no really direct competitor other than, you know, there's another domestic program in the U.S. Um, called the National Ignition Facility. It's the world's largest laser. And they're using that giant laser in, in Livermore, California to do similar things as what we're using this giant pulse power machine in Albuquerque, New Mexico to do. Um, so, you know, our biggest competitors are fellow American citizens um, working in this same enterprise. So there is no real risk of getting scooped. At the same time, it's big science. It's one of the last vestiges of big science. You've got hundreds of millions of dollars a year of taxpayer money going to these programs trying to solve these big problems on behalf of, you know, the country, its 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 future, its economic future, its national, its national security future. 
Um, and you don't want to squander those resources. So there is pressure, even if it's not necessarily coming from a, a large cadre of scientists all trying to do the same thing um, and get to the finish line first. So, so it's interesting. Uh, but the, I was going to say, the great thing about being an Albuquerque, yeah, though, so, is, is the photography component, if you want to segue in that direction. Unless you have more questions, because I can nerd well, out about science gonna... as much as you want, man. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, maybe uh, over some beers, because that blows my mind. But sure, I think the other aspect of, of you as a person, and as a photographer, that's that even adds more interest, I think, for for people listening is the fact that, you know, you also are a family man and sure. you're a father of two young boys. And so, you know, as someone who, how, how old are your kids? They're three and five. And, three uh, and five. So, you, so you're solving the world's problems <laughs> and you're a father of two young guys. So how do you find time to make photographs with so much home responsibility? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a really good question. You know, I, I pride myself you know, in, in my work, I, I want to believe that I'm living up to um, some pretty high standards in terms of the partnership I bring to my marriage and to, to, to fatherhood. I don't want to be an absentee father. I want to be very involved in my kids' lives. But I also have the kind of personality where I, I have to have a diversion. I have to have something to get better at that isn't work and doesn't require a lot of input from other people. Um, for a long time, it was guitar played in a band for a while uh, in grad school, actually, and would do, you know, three hour late night shows in Philadelphia and drive back to Jersey, at, you know, at three in the morning and uh, really enjoyed that. But as soon as, you know, the band kind of went their way, separate ways, I put my guitar down and, and I just didn't come back to it. Uh, and so I needed something else. And I had some friends who were interested in photography and I thought were pretty good at the time. They were just doing it, you know, as a hobby and always wanted to get into it. And um, really the inciting incident for me and what, what, what put me on the path I'm on now was the 2017 solar eclipse that went across the United States. Do you have a chance to see it? Where were you? I did. I was actually on top of a 13,000 foot mountain in the San Juans here in Colorado. So it wasn't a full. Okay. You didn't get to see full, totality. Then, um, yeah. I didn't see totality, but you know, for, for a brief few moments, it was super dark in the middle of the day and I was on top of a mountain trying to photograph it. So that was pretty sweet. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, you know, <laughs> that, that moment right before totality, which is kind of what you see when you're not in the path of totality, but just off of it, you, you look at the ground and you can start to see like swirls of light on the ground. Uh, and it's actually the way light is scattering off the turbulence in the atmosphere when you've got a line that's emitting light instead of a nice round ball. Um, you know, that's super cool. But totality was like this, you know, I, I wasn't, I was on the fence about going. Um, and then a couple months before the eclipse, I, I made, my, made up my mind, like, I got to go see this. And, uh, and then came to figure out that, you know, all the hotels within several hundred miles of the path of totality across <laughs> the United States were booked. Uh, and so I paid some, you know, exorbitant money, right, to find like a hotel in Fort Collins, which still was going to be, a, I don't know, a four or five hour drive to get to the path of totality the next day. Um, right. You know, so I, I, I committed myself. I wasn't in the best of, 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 you know, places I think to do it easily, but really wanted to see it. And then a month before um, the eclipse happened on a lark, I, I, I wanted to document it, you know, and I wanted to commemorate the experience. And my, my oldest son at the time was only two 
And we had decked out his room in like Hubble images. So he had a space theme room. And so I've got all these, you know, professional NASA grade um, astro photos adorning his room. And I, and I thought, you know, I really want to get into photography. I've been dabbling. I'm going to go see this kind of what feels like a once in a lifetime experience. You know, I want to document it and I want to create something I can hang in my son's room. And so I started procuring like a relatively inexpensive telescope. I already had a Nikon D500. So I had a, you know, a, a decent crop sensor camera to attach it to. Started doing my research. How am I going to get totality? And then a month before the eclipse, I don't know what, what inspired me to look, but, but there are websites that'll tell you when the International Space Station is going to cross in front of the sun or the moon, and it'll show you kind of where you need to stand to be able to witness it. And I was just curious. I'm like, I wonder if anyone else has thought about whether or not the ISS is going to move in front of the sun during this brief eclipse. And sure enough, you know, I was already planning on going to Wyoming and there was this pat, patch of, you know, light or pardon me, a, a, a little swath of land about a mile wide stretching across Wyoming where the uh, ISS was going to cross in front of the sun uh, when the sun was already kind of halfway blocked by the moon. And so that just like that got the, the you know, the, the technical minded science geek in me all excited. And I started going through, you know, all kinds of preparation to basically try to capture this event. And I did a dry run in Edgewood, kind of on the east side of the uh, Sandia Mountains here in New Mexico, a couple of weeks before the eclipse and just proved to myself, okay, I understand technically how to get a, an ISS transit. Granted, this, these transits happen every day and there's nothing unique about any particular transit. Um, but I, but I convinced myself I could do it. And so, you know, day before the eclipse, I'm, I'm, I'm hanging out in Wyoming and looking at the weather forecast and it looks like, oh crap, there's going to be clouds coming off the Wind River Range, drifting over where I'm going to be parked on the highway to, to catch this event. And, uh, you know, the morning of, sure enough, the clouds were there, um, could see it on satellite view, but I committed to driving out there anyway. And like 30 minutes before the eclipse, before this uh, transit was going to happen, the, you know, the clouds part in that, uh, you know, very epic sort of way and the sun comes out. And from there on, man, it was it was muscle memory. Got the transit and uh, and and just cheered there on the side of the road. Like I just witnessed something that I I don't even know if anyone else in, in the world saw this. Turns out about five or six other people, uh, about half of whom were actually probably in the fields right next to where I was, uh, were also there to shoot that transit. Um, but I, you know, it kind of felt like really? just this. Yeah, yeah. One of them became quite popular. Because they shared their, you know, kind of uh, real time experience on their YouTube channel, and so when I posted mine, a lot of people were like, "Oh, did you see this person? They did it too." Uh, it actually, turns out one of the other guys who did it actually works at my lab, and I don't, I didn't even know him, you know. But one of the six people in the world who caught this event works in the same lab that I do, so that was kind of cool. But man, that and then totality after that, you know, was just icing on the cake. The, tr the pressure was off. It was like I caught this event, this you know, double eclipse, basically. And uh, it just felt so good to, to, to look at the camera screen and say, wow, you know, I, I'm so glad I was here. And, and, you know, that lit a fire in me. Like, it, you know, there's nothing mysterious about celestial events. And they're very, you, know, you could look at this in a positive way or a negative way. They're very predictable. And so that, that really got me thinking about, you know, how, how can I do this? How can I try to capture events that, you know, few people, if any, have the opportunity to see and witness. And, and then seeing through the lens of a camera, as you well know, you know, cameras can pick up so much stuff that the human eye can't, that gives you just that much more power to render, you know, a, a natural scene in a way that augments our senses 
and gives us uh, you know better appreciation for what's out there. So that that yeah, was I like, 2017. I like what you said about. I, I like what you said about celestial events because it's interesting. I remember the first celestial event that I was excited about was in 2011. Okay. I found out that the, you know, Venus was going to transit across the sun. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, okay. And if I, you know, I think it, I don't think it's going to happen again in our lifetime. I think it happens like every 160 years or something like that. This is why I'm already jealous. Because <laughs> I wasn't in, I wasn't in astrophotography back then. I missed it. So tell me all yeah, about it. <laughs> so I remember I borrowed. So at the t- it was like I, it was like I still had my first DSLR at the time. It was a Nikon D seven thousand, and I borrowed a friend of mine's uh, Nikon eighty to two hundred push pull. Okay, well, like an old, mm-hmm. old telephoto, and um, I had a ten stop uh, neutral density filter. And um, yeah, I think you're familiar with the Garden of the Gods in Colorado Springs. Yeah, yeah. But I wanted to get the sun in the window of the Kissing Camels rock mm-hmm. formation. Oh, that's epic. Okay. With, with the Venus transit across the sun. Oh, yeah. So I was like, how do I do this, right? Because it's, yeah, you know, yeah. the transit's happening from, I think it was like an hour of total time. Mm-hmm. So you're boxed into like, a window. You got to figure out the right angles, where you got to stand. Yeah. So like, so literally, I just went there, and like this was before photo pills and all that stuff. So, right, right. you know, I just went there and I just followed the the shadow, oh. or not the shadow, but the opposite, <laughs> the shadow of yeah, the yeah, yeah. of the of the what well, you know the light coming through the kissing camels to figure out where I needed to stand at a very specific time of day mm-hmm. the next day for that event. And sure enough, I went there and. Boom. I got it. It was awesome. I I, I got (laughs) to see this image, but you're, I got to see this image first because that sounds amazing. Um, You're also giving me some PTSD of, uh, (laughs) yeah, another space station transit I I, I shot, you know, so, so, you know, okay. I'm trying to think of how to weave all this together. So I am a family man. Um, And so uh, another thing that got me to ask for photography and, and the eclipse wasn't a great example because I had to travel for that. uh, And it happened in the middle of the day. But as I as I became right. more aware of what most people doing, you know, astrophotography, especially not just pointing a telescope into space, but p- people who are actually shooting parts of the Earth with it too, they were doing landscape astrophotography, and a lot of you know most of that's done at night. What I really love about um, nighttime photography is that I can do it without really burdening my family too much. Uh, you know, I can do it mm-hmm. while my kids and my wife are asleep. And I, I usually try to keep a tight enough radius around my home base so that I can drive home in the middle of the night and I can be there when my kids wake up in the morning. Now, granted, I'm, I'm a bit of a pain in the ass the next day because I'm tired, but uh, I'm there, <laughs> you know, I'm there to, at, you know, at one point change diapers and now it's break up fights, uh, you know, and, and try to keep the kids entertained, but I'm there. And so that that is why very early on that and just this amazement and, and, and wonder at everything that's out there and, and how predictable and yet awe-inspiring it could be. That all got me really into it. But the space station stuff always stuck with me too. And, and you know, maybe the biggest thing being a scientist has done for me is it's kind of taught me how to approach problems that I don't know how to solve right off the bat. It's taught me how to, you know, just kind of dig in and divide a problem into chunks that can be solved more easily. And then you eventually you weave it all together to solve a bigger problem. And so, uh, and so the space station transits were an interesting idea, but I didn't just want to go out and shoot 
you know, here's another shot of the space station passing in front of the moon or the sun. And, and the eclipse kind of set me on a certain path. So if I'm going to shoot it, I want to shoot it and make it look interesting and have it be a, a much more um, ephemeral and, and unique event. And so at one point I got it in my head, I have never seen anybody and I, I Googled the crap out of it and I couldn't, I couldn't find anyone who'd posted it. I'd never seen anybody catch a transit at sunrise, you know, as the sun is peeking out above something or setting, you know, let me, let me stand in the exact spot. So I'm simultaneously catching sunrise and this spacecraft passing in front of the sun. And I waited for a year for an opportunity, just every, every week or so reloading a website that shows when transits would occur, just trying to find, you know, a, a space station shadow that was passing close enough to a mountain range at a low enough elevation angle that I could potentially line it up. And finally, you know, an opportunity came. It was in August uh, of, I want to say, 2019. And, uh, and that precipitated what I, I would say is the most technical shot I've ever done. And, uh, and I, I, I watched the, the, you know, occasionally the space station has to perform maneuvers to avoid space junk and put itself on the right path. And so, you know, in the, in the weeks leading up to this event, you know, I'm watching the path shift around a little bit. And I'm starting to line up in the photographer's ephemeris and Planet Pro and these apps that I use. You know, how can I how can I be standing in this very narrow swath where I will have a chance to witness the space station and be looking up at the right angle so that when this happens, I'm also staring at the top of a mountain um, so that I'm getting sunrise and the transit, you know, a, a three second event and a two minute event to all line up and coincide at the same time. You know, and basically this amounted to like being able to stand you know, miles from a mountain peak and be accurate to within like a tenth of a degree of what angle I was looking up at. And so, you know, I did a dry run the, mo- the morning before and, and went out to the area where I was going to get this shot the next day and hiked to the middle of a wash where I, you know, had planned to cat. You know, it's like if, if sunrise is going to happen at the time I want it, then I better be able to stand here and see sunrise this morning. And the sun came up like a minute after when I had planned. I was like, oh, crap. You know, I'm pretty sure I did the calculation right. So there's got to be something wrong in the, you know, the elevation data in my app. And how am I going to compensate for that? So day of, I try to intelligently compensate. But, you know, the sun moves around every day. We're going around the sun. So every day the sun rises in a slightly different spot. So now I'm standing in a different spot. The sun's rising over a different part of the mountain. And I'm trying to apply yesterday's wisdom, today's shot. I ended up overcompensating. So now I think, you know, I'm gold. I'm golden. I've got my telescope out on this hiking trail. I'm staring up at these radio towers. I'm getting ready to capture this once in a lifetime event for me, you know, that I'd never done before. And the sun comes up like a minute early. <laughs> totally opposite problem the day before. And now it's like, oh man, I am going to miss this shot. The sun is going to clear the mountain by the time the space station moves in front of the sun. What am I going to do? I've got this telescope sitting on top of this bulky tripod and about 45 seconds before the, the transit, I'm like, screw it. I'm going to get my telescope off the tripod. I tuck it under my arm. My dad's with me. And so he's got my phone now getting ready to tell me exactly when the space station is going to move. And I start sprinting down the hill and doing the exact opposite of what you were doing. You were chasing the light and I was chasing the shadow of the sun. I was chasing the shadow of the mountain right. as it was receding down this hill, trying to get the sun <laughs> to set again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And finally, you know, less than 30 seconds before the transit, I feel like I'm in a good spot. And I just lay on my back and prop this telescope. You know, it's about a 2000 millimeter equivalent focal length. And I've got no tripod now. So I just prop it between my knees and it's got a solar filter on. So I can't see anything except the sun. 
no matter where I point it, I don't know where I'm pointing it unless I'm pointing it right at the sun and the sun's in my face. And I'm shaking around this, you know, 2000 millimeter setup, trying to reacquire the sun with less than 30 seconds to go. And I'm just shaky as hell from sprinting downhill. And I don't even know how this happened, but I finally see the sun in the LCD monitor and I start rapid firing frames as my dad's yelling at me, go, go, go. And, and when I did the image review afterwards, you know, the sun's bouncing all around. I don't know how I kept it in the frame, but the very first shot I got was the first moment that the space station started transiting the sun. So I had zero margin. I, you know, I, I somehow reacquired the sun right on time. So, uh, you know, it was just this like epic and completely undesirable. I didn't want to have to do that. I was worried to camera shake, make the shot a little less sharp, even though my shutter speed was really high, but that was one of those experiences where it's like you put so much planning into something and you really want to witness this event and you're just, you know, you, you just refuse to give up on it, even when it looks like you've lost it. Um, so it was one of those stories where I, I was really pleased with how it turned out in the end. And I think actually it, the shot, which isn't actually that aesthetically pleasing, it's more of just kind of a visual spectacle, but not something I'd want to hang on my wall. Um, but it's got the story behind it. Well, it's a story, it. though. It's a story, you know, and, and, uh, and, yeah. it, and it demystified that process yeah. to me. Um, I've wanted to improve on it, but I, I've actually not had another good opportunity come up in like, you know, a year and a half since then. So these things don't happen all the time. I was lucky to get the shot right. I got. So anyway, your, your, you know, your story of chasing the sun totally reminded me of this. <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting because um, I feel like that's one of the things that makes photography such a, an accessible art form for a lot of people is because in order, at least for some of us, you know, I think photography, especially landscape and astrophotography, especially, it involves some level of um, problem solving mm-hmm. that engages kind of a different, you know, outside of our something we're kind of used to as maybe someone who's a scientist or, you know, someone who's um, good at, you know, I don't know, business planning or leadership or whatever, sure. like you have some innate skill in something about problem solving. Mm-hmm. So you can apply that towards creating something a little bit artistic. So it, so it's, it's almost like this, I don't know, I don't want to say shortcut, mm-hmm. but it, it, it makes it accessible to people that may not consider themselves artistic in a way that maybe is a little bit of kind of like a, like a jump start in some way. So yeah, I, yeah. I was, you know, I was curious for you, you know, with your background as a physicist, how has that, how has that background in, influenced your artwork um, beyond what we've already discussed? Yeah. Well, and, and, and this is a great time to say, I'm actually kind of amazed how many other scientists and engineer types you've had on your show. Quite frankly, I, you know, here I thought in my mind, you know, this has all been a multi-year ruse to, to hang out with you, Matt. Um, you know, everything I've done is leading up to this moment, but but nevertheless, you know, all the all the immersion I've had in, in your show, which I binge as much as I can, um, I've been amazed. You know, Rene Algesheimer, Manuel Palacios, Michael Remke, Dave Morrow, just to name a few. Like, you've got some really technically minded people that are doing great stuff in in this field on all kinds of fronts. And uh, and it kind of amazes me. And so, uh, you know, they've shared a ton of their wisdom. And and I guess what I could add to the conversation is that. I think science has taught me how to solve problems. And it's not the only route to becoming a, an avid and adept problem solver. It's just, it's an approach. It's a philosophy um, that, that 
has worked out well for me and it's, I found ways to apply it elsewhere. And so with that ability to solve problems comes a certain fearlessness of like, if I really want to capture something, I know with enough time and effort, I can figure out a way. Um, honestly, beyond that, photography is my way to get away from science and get away from my professional life. And so, you know, I, I, I don't shy away from the really technical shots because I was trying as I was coming into this field, you know, or coming, I call it a field and that's just a professional, you know, nomenclature I'm now dragging into the photography world. Right. But, uh, when I was getting started, I thought, well, I don't want to just do stuff that everyone else is doing. Um, but I don't have a ton of time. I'm a dad. I've got a really, you know, a hectic job that I'm, I, you know, I'm really committed to how on just a handful of hours in the field a month, am I going to do anything that I feel is unique that breaks some kind of new ground and brings me pleasure uh, by feeling like I'm, I'm, you know, uh, stepping into, you know, at least on the boundary of, of, of uncharted territory and uh, you know, and night photography and a lot of the really technical elements of it attracted me because I honestly had way more time to think about photography than I had to actually do it. And that caused me to gravitate towards kinds of shots that, that I only came by because I had lots of time to study um, in, in just planetarium apps and landscape photography planning apps. Like here's how the sky lines up. Here's, here's how um, objects can be juxtaposed. Here's some interesting coincidental things that happen let me start thinking about it and planning it and, um, you know, picturing it in abstraction. And that saves me time when I get out in the field. Now, from, from a lot of guests you've had, you know, there are other ways to approach this pursuit. Um, and, and at times, I'll admit, I, I have felt very self-conscious listening to some really, really talented photographers talk about, you know, the improvisational nature of it, the very reactionary nature of it, uh, and, and how that spontaneity in the field mm -hmm. can lead to your best work letting the light dictate what you shoot. And, uh, you know, for a while I didn't have the luxury to do that. Uh, I didn't have a lot of time and I wanted to create something in the little bit of time I had that I, I, I was proud of and, and I felt was, was trying at least aspiring to do something new. And so I gravitated towards very technical shots that, uh, you know, I was kind of convinced that they were new mostly because I didn't know if anyone else had the patience to do them. <laughs> But beyond the technical elements of it, I don't really think about science when I'm out in the field. You know, I think science has just got given me the ability to, to not get intimidated by, you know, a shot that might require a lot of, you know, uh, tricks uh, and, and, and technical work to, to pull off. Um, but I just really love being connected right. to nature, being out in the elements, you know, when I spend most of my time in a bomb bunker of an office or in a house full of toys, you know, just being out in nature is, is, is so much, you know, there's just so much mental relief that comes with that. So, uh, you know, maybe that's not a super satisfactory answer. I, I I'm using photography to escape science in a sense, but, uh, uh, but that's, that, that really is, you know, it is a wonderful diversion. No, well, it's interesting because earlier you had mentioned, um, that a lot of what I guess, draws you into photography or the style of photography that you engage in is this idea of that you, you feel the compulsion to break new ground. And I too found that compulsion very um, enticing, especially early on in my photography career. And I'm just curious from your point of view, why, why was that important to you? That's a really good question. You know, there's a, you know, I suppose there's an ego side of it that 
we all want to believe we've got the, you know, the faculties and the wherewithal to not just reinvent other people's work, but to do something unique and something we can call our own. And, and, and so I'm sure there was part of that, you know, I'll, I'll tell you what, one of the things I love about photography, in fact, probably my favorite thing is camaraderie and being part of a community. And I guess early on my, you know, my thought was that if I don't try to do something unique, I'm not sure how long it's going to take me with the little time I have to devote to this pursuit, especially at first, you know, how long it's going to take for me to really feel like I'm part of the community and to form relationships with people I look up to and to become, to, to, to attain a peer group. You know, I, I would, I would, if I left photography today, just the friendships I've made through it would be more than enough for me to, to leave me satisfied and say it was all worth it. And, you know, it's, it's, maybe a little sad to say, but like a lot of the people I know and, and people I respect and people I'm really, you know, delighted to call friends, yourself included, you know, I, I have in some sense, social media in part to thank for it, you know, um, the mm-hmm. the aspiration to try to do something that no one has, has done before, or at least done and posted all over the internet before, you know, as, as weird as it is to say that, you know, I, I'm not sure I'd be talking to you right now if I was doing the same thing I'm doing now, but not sharing it with anybody, keeping it to myself or keeping it amongst a close group of friends who maybe aren't so deeply connected to the photography community. So I think having that, that drive to not just reinvent the wheel, but try to think of creative ways to explore the craft um, in, in ways that I at least personally hadn't seen from studying, you know, an endless procession of night photos across my feeds and, 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 uh, and thinking about, well, what else is out there? Uh, what else might you be able to do with these wonderful tools that we have uh, to present, you know, to, to capture a scene that I know exists, um, but maybe, you know, no one really made a concerted effort to capture before. Um, so I, I guess that's that's what drives me towards it. And, you know, I've, I've never been driven to be the, well, okay, in, in grade school, I wanted to be the best, right? Now I, my mind is totally relaxed. And maybe, maybe being in a career that, you know, people have been pursuing fusion since the dawn of the atomic age. And here I am, you know, five or six generations into this, you know, century long effort, understanding that I might not be the one to solve this problem, that I might be part of the, uh, you know, multi-generational procession of scientists that makes real progress on it. You know, now I've, I've accepted that I might not be the best at something, but I'd like to be good enough at something that I have peers I respect and, and peers who respect me that kind of camaraderie and, and respect that goes both ways really appeals to me. I, I, I enjoy that in my career and I really enjoy that in photography because photography is entirely on my terms. You know, I, I get out of it what I put into it. And I think the friendships I've made along the way are, are a testament to, you know, it being time well spent. Uh, I really like what you said there, you know, not to, uh, not to put my friend Kane on the spot, but you know we share a lot of campfires together, and he, I look up to him a lot. And one, a couple of months ago, we were sitting around a campfire in the desert and having a heavy conversation about, you know, some of his motivations around photography. And you know, he shared with me that a lot of why what he really wants out of photography is just to have his peers appreciate his work. Mm-hmm. He doesn't care if he sells. A bunch of prints. He doesn't care if he can, you know, teach a bunch of workshops or make a bunch of money or anything like that. He really just wants 
to have people that he respects think that his work is pretty good, you know? So, and, and I think this all, this, this isn't new for humanity. Mm -hmm. I think at the end of the day, we all are driven by kind of our search for meaning as, you know, being humans on this planet and trying to figure out where we fit in all of this. And, And I think what you said speaks to the value of community and, and, you know, that I think transcends a lot of, all of the noise that we see and hear about debates around post-processing or, <laughs> or, or politics even, you know, like this, this idea that we can sit around a campfire together and appreciate each other's work and, and what we're contributing to, to the field, as you like sure. to say. Sure. I, think, I think there is something brilliant to that statement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're a communal species. We, we you know, it's, it, I, I don't think we can be happy without those ties. And I, and I think especially when, when those ties are formed outside of the typical, you know, societal obligations you have to, to have a job and to support a family, when it, when that community is born from something you just love to do, it's just that much more rewarding. Now, you know, that's, that's not to say that um, that's the sole driver to trying to do unique stuff. Um, But it's a, it's a major perk because if, if you do unique stuff and you don't have to be the first person to do it, but if you're, if you're treading water that, you know, where there's a lot of low hanging fruit, it's poorly explored and there's something to it, you know, people pick up on it fast enough that, that you build connections. You start building inroads with a community of people and, and, and start forming bonds through that work, you know, and if that work is really nice to look at too, it's, it's just an added benefit. Right. And so I've definitely, I've talked a lot about, you know, highly technical shots, but I will say like, I am very attracted to compositions and, and juxtapositions that are, you know, very aesthetically pleasing, you know, evoke some, some emotion or at least some realization about what's out there in the universe and how it might relate to what's sitting here on planet earth. You know, that all I'm motivated by wanting to create stuff that I'd I'd like to hang up in my house and, and look at every day. There's all of that too. But if, if you ask me what my favorite thing was about photography, it would be other photographers, um, you know, and that's why mm. listening to your podcast is so fun because I just get to, you know, even if um, I hold up a mirror to myself, you know, nearly every podcast and, and, and find deficiencies in my own workflow or my own philosophy or, you know, things that I might not do out of, um, you know, the lack of time to do it or, or laziness or, or just, uh, you know, lack of opportunity. Um, when you, when you, you know, sift through all that noise, there's still this very rewarding thing of I, I'm getting to enjoy this passion. I know there's other people out there who are passionate about it and slowly but surely I'm, I'm bonding with them and, and being part of the conversation. So, uh, and it's cool. It's cool that Kane shares the, say same, if, uh, uh, the same philosophy at some, at some level, right? Never mind how fun it is just to sit around with people out in nature and hang out, you know, photography aside, if photography is your excuse to yeah. get out there, then so be it. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, if um, <laughs> if you want to have the experience of not measuring up as a photographer, try being a podcast host. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's, you, it's double duty, man, because you're you're probably comparing yourself to other podcasters and you're interviewing, you know, a lot of really talented photographers. And so you're getting kind of your ego kind of poked at from two different angles, right? Oh yeah, my my ego is 
is squished to an appropriately small place now. <laughs> yeah. I think humility is totally good fine. too. <laughs> Abs- absolutely. So, um, so total right hand turn. Sure. But I think it's super related to what we were just talking about. What the hell is a deepscape, Paul? <laughs> That's a good question. Because you know, so as you know, I am partnering with some photographers from the United Kingdom on a competition, as well as Rajesh uh, mm-hmm. Jodhiswaran. And I like Rajesh, Rajesh yeah. and I were trying to explain to them deepscape. And they're yeah. like, what? Like, it's kind of a foreign concept to some people. So, uh, so tell us tell us what a deepscape is, man. So before I answer that question, I'm going to ask you a question. Oh, um, man. And this, this uh, you know, and this may or may not pull in, you know, viewpoints from other other people as well. But you are a night photographer, but I know you've de-emphasized some of your night photography a bit. I know you still shoot, but I know you, shoot, you used to shoot a lot more. And so I'm curious how your priorities have shifted and what might've caused you to shift away from night photography, um, you know, at, at points uh, throughout your photographic endeavor journey, I guess. Uh, that, that wasn't, that's a, that's a nice lead in because I think, and I think, you know, how I'm going to answer the question. And I think that's going to be a good explanation as to what deepscapes are and why you do them. Sure. However, <laughs> I think the reason why, for me, I've de-emphasized night photography to some degree is because since I've been doing it, which was, you know, 2011, you know, back in 2011, there was very, very, very few people doing um, long exposures of the Milky Way mm-hmm. paired, paired with some type of, you know, land-based element, whether it be a mountain or a lake or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was kind of hard to pull off. I mean, it was, you know, people would pay you money to teach them how to do it. Not that it's like that complicated, but you know, it was, it was pretty uncommon to see a pretty decent night photograph, you know, mm-hmm. and you, you couple, um, the ad, the, um, advancement of sensor technology with God dang it, Paul, with, <laughs> with, you know, just the popularization of, of, of digital manipulation and the ability to literally just composite a Milky Way scene from a different time into your scene. And it looks pretty solid Mm -hmm. and everyone's saying, wow, that looks awesome. That's great. To me, like that just took all the wind out of my sails Mm -hmm. and it just made it not that exciting in terms of, you know, like if that's what it takes for people to get excited about that kind of work, I'm, and it's that easy to do, then I'm just, it just, I don't know. It, to me, it, it really just, I don't know, man. It just was kind of depressing. No, so. it's, it's a really, it's a good observation. And there's, and there's some like, you know, there's some good physics behind your observation that you could take a, a, a totally random starlet foreground and you could take a totally separate Milky Way sky shot and you could weave them together in a way that seems credible to your intuition. And, and even with the advent of sky replacement, which I'm sure is, is making it even easier to, to fake a daytime scene or, you know, composite, um, you know, multiple scenes into one credible scene. I think it's even easier to do at night because the, the lighting is flat. You know, I, I know Alex Noriega brought up this idea that because night photography, because night light, starlight is so predictable 
and never changes that there's something inherently um, drab, I guess, about those kind of conditions and the kind of creativity that those conditions permit. And that's evidenced through this idea that it's very easy to create credible scenes that you did not witness. Um, and I could totally see mm -hmm. how that could suck, suck the motivation out of it, um, out of pursuing that kind of uh, aesthetic, those kinds of scenes. Uh, so, so Deepscapes were kind of a happy, I don't want to say accident, but just a, you know, a, a, a diversion for me that was born from just this idea. Um, and, uh, and I think helps chip away a little bit at this notion that, you know, nightlight is flat, it's predictable, it never changes, scenes always look the same. And so night photography is always just, hey, here's a foreground with the Milky Way over it. So, so if you look at winter <laughs> right. scenes, right, if you look at winter Milky Way scenes, you're already, you're already eliminating like 95% of the Milky Way shots out there because a lot of people don't like to go out when it's cold in the Northern Hemisphere and image the winter branch of the Milky Way. But if you look at winter scenes, there are little blobs of light that aren't the Milky Way. They're off off the band of the Milky Way a little bit. And uh, and they show up clear as day in nice wide angle shots. They're just very poorly resolved. And one of them is the Andromeda Galaxy. And it's pretty close to the arm of the winter Milky Way, but it's separated enough that it's not like hidden by that glow right of our own galaxy. And it shows up in all these shots. And what was really profound to me when I when I started noticing it in a couple shots I had taken and shots other people were taking is this light coming from this galaxy is different than everything else we're looking at. Um, you know, all the light in our galaxy, you know, at at most is maybe a hundred thousand years old. You know, our galaxy is about a hundred thousand light years across, and therefore, by definition, the oldest light that you're witnessing goes back about a hundred thousand years. But this little blob of light, you know, off the main arm of the Milky Way. That's two and a half million year old light. You're looking at another galaxy. You're looking at this island universe totally removed from, from us and removed from our experiences. It's really hard to see with the naked eye, but it's out there. And what's really profound about it is it's a galaxy that looks a lot like our own. It's actually a little bigger than ours. And you can imagine there are probably civilizations in that galaxy that when they look up at their night sky... Because we're not looking at them edge on. Andromeda is tilted relative to us, which means when they're looking it back at us, we're not in their Milky Way band, right? They can see our blob of light coming from two and a half million year, light years away, right? And so there's this duality to it. I am looking at another galaxy and there could be people in this other galaxy looking back at me and we might be seeing the same thing, you know? Um, that felt really profound. And so, you know, wanting to capture this two and a half million year old light and make it the centerpiece. How, how do I communicate with people that even if you can't appreciate it with your eyes, unless you're kind of attuned to looking for it, we are being bathed in millions of year old light photons from an island universe. And it's bouncing off of our terrain. It's bouncing off of our mountains, our lakes, our trees. And, and there's this duality where as I'm watching this galactic light coming at me, there could be someone out there two and a half million years from now that's going to see the same thing looking back at us. And so, you know, it was, how do I make this galaxy put, bring it front and center, not make it this little blob of light, but, but really communicate to people that this is out there, um, that these, these things really do juxtapose and align. And there's some really profound experiential basis to it. Um, and so I started thinking about it. Well, if you want to make a galaxy look bigger, 
first of all, the Andromeda galaxy isn't that small. It spans three degrees of our sky, which is actually six times more sky than the full moon occupies. So it's not that small, but it's so dim that, uh, you know, it's really hard to see unless it's, you know, mostly overhead and you know what you're looking for. So, you know, I, I've been dabbling in night photography enough to know that the moon looks good in a telephoto shot. And if this thing is bigger than the moon, from my perspective, then a telephoto lens seems to be the right tool for the job. And this got me thinking about, well, how, how am I going to apply the tactics I know, um, you know, that, that a lot of people in the night photography community know? How am I going to apply that and get a, and get a good image? And, and this started, you know, a couple months of, of thinking really hard about it. Uh, and, uh, and starting to go through the motions of planning a shot. And so I figured out, okay, over hundred millimeter focal length. If I go out to the full 200 millimeters that my telephoto zoom gets me at Andromeda is going to occupy a pretty significant part of that frame, but it's very dim. And when you're at that kind of a focal length and you're not tracking the sky, you can only shoot for a couple seconds before starlight starts blurring, right. And trailing. And even at F 2.8, with an f2.8 wide angle lens, I could leave it open for 30 seconds and get Andromeda nice and bright, albeit on a lot fewer pixels. Two seconds in exposure before I trail, it's like I, I, I have to track. There is no way other than tracking the sky and freezing it in place and leaving the shutter open longer. Am I going to be able to do this without racking up thousands of exposures at some obscenely high ISO? And so that was the first thing that was immediately obvious is there is no way to do this and line up this scene, this moment without shooting some part of it on a tracker. The other thing was just, how do I actually get the scene to line up? And, and the first scene that I really wanted to try to shoot was getting it next to a mountain peak, you know, some really beautiful, uh, natural scene that just shows that while we are viewing something really epic and beautiful, uh, you know, that's right in front of us and obvious, there is this other epic and beautiful thing, two and a half million light years behind it, that's bearing witness to it. You know, we are bearing witness to both of these things simultaneously. And so working out in alignment and finding the right scene was another challenge. And I spent, you know, on and off, you know, several evenings over the course of a month or two, just trying to figure out what scene am I going to try to shoot? And I ruled out basically every prominent mountain peak in Northern New Mexico, just everywhere where I figured out where I would need to stand to get Andromeda in, in November in 2018, as it turned out in, in November to line up and sit next to a, a, a really beautiful mountain peak the place I'd have to be standing was totally inaccessible. And so I had to cast a wider net and what wound up doing it for me was right in your backyard, um, engineer mountain, um, just North of purgatory. And it just turned yeah. out that there was a highway yeah, like running alongside it. 30 minutes away. Yeah, no. And it's, it's gorgeous. You know, it's, it's honestly prettier than, than, and more austere than anything I have access to in, in the Northern part of my state. And, uh, and it just so happened there was a road running, running by it where I could get in the right spot at the right angle at the right time to capture this event. And I was convinced I can make this happen. I could get this scene. Um, and I think I know technically what I need to do to, to capture it. And so I like the space station shot. I did a dry run. I'd never shot Andromeda before. I got out a cheap tracker that I had, that came with that telescope I bought to shoot the space station transit. I'd never used it before slapped my camera on it and went out a couple weeks before the shot to just prove to myself, Hey, this is how you shoot Andromeda and not overexpose it, not underexpose it, stack some exposures together. You get some good detail in the galaxy. And it's like, okay, there's that piece of the mystery solved. The last thing I need to do is just go out there and try and imagine, you know, I'm, I'm about a year into my photography pursuit, you know, not that long. And I'm telling my wife, I want to rent a hotel room in purgatory and drive four hours 
and go spend three hours on the side of the road in 15 degree weather in the middle of the night to capture this scene because I just think it's going to be really <laughs> cool. And I don't know. I don't know how I got her blessing. You know, she's very supportive. Yeah. So I'm very grateful. And she's she, like, she's like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, and I, I don't want to, you know, I certainly don't want to throw her under the bus because she's been just supremely supportive. Um, and, and most of the limits I put on myself are me trying to intuit what a good partner would do and, and not ask his partner to do in his absence. Right. So anyway, she gives me the green light and my dad and I drive up to purgatory and it's November. No one's there in purgatory yet. There's like three people at this giant resort, right? It's, it's, it's just abandoned. Uh, and I go to bed, alarm goes off at like 1230 in the morning. Hey, it's time to get up and go stand out on the side of the road above 10,000 feet and watch this thing happen. And, uh, yeah, drove out, set my stuff up. It's absolutely frigid and a breeze picks up and, and I'm just, you know, my dad is miserable, but he's there. You know, he's he's my he's my photography buddy on a lot of my shoots. We've done some pretty cool stuff together, and uh, I just start setting up my stuff, and 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 I've got the shot planned out. I've lined it up, you know, in abstraction at first. Now I'm on the scene, lining it up for real. I frame the mountain, and I pan up. I'm polar aligned, so I pan up, and I find Andromeda, and I'm and and at that point. I start shooting Andromeda and collecting exposures and I've got my tracker on and I'm just following it with the sky frozen in place exactly where I want it in the final scene. And I follow it down and I just start collecting data on it, you know, several, I don't know, 40 something second exposures. And at the moment, my composition lines up at the moment that I, you know, that I wanted to capture, I shut the tracker off. And so now the stars start trailing, but I've locked the land into place and I shoot my static foreground frames. And in the end, what I needed to do to put this first deepscape together um, was combine tracked sky frames with, with the static foreground frames. And these frames were collected over the span of almost an hour, right? To get a, enough, enough signal to noise, get enough good data on Andromeda to actually make it look not super grainy and look nice in a final product. You have to, you have to stay on it for a while. So there's just no way to do this kind of shot in a single frame. Um, but the way I rendered it right by precisely picking out the right position and then polar aligning and making sure that as I track the sky down, it will set exactly where I want the sky to be relative to my foreground. When I turn my tracker off, what I'm doing in the end, when I'm compositing together track sky data with static foreground data is I'm rendering a moment and that moment existed. That moment was, was true to where I was standing at that moment in time. And, uh, and it's just rendered with a level of detail, um, and quality that you just can't do in a single snap with, with these light starved environments that we're looking at. So that, that in an anecdotal form is what a deepscape is. It's really just an extension of night photography beyond your typical wide angle Milky Way kind of archetypal composition and, and acknowledging the fact that if you divide the sky into smaller and smaller patches, you can stumble across some really interesting visual matter that when arranged with the right foreground can really create this great complementary scene where you're both fascinated by this, this glowing nebulous object that's out there, uh, despite the fact you can't perceive it normally. And yet here it is shining down on this very terrestrial, very familiar environment that resonates more with our senses and our intuition and, and, you know, there's a profoundness to or profundity or whatever the word is, right? To um, acknowledging that these things happen all the time. And it's just without 
leveraging these kinds of tricks, you don't really get the opportunity to witness it in its full splendor. Uh, and so that, you know, that got noticed. It, it got traction uh, on, you know, various night photography forums and at least was an affirmation to me that what I thought was really compelling resonated with other people. And it, it convinced me that, okay, you know, this can be done. Now let's start thinking about where I can go with it. And, and since then, you know, I've shot a lot of deep sky objects and tried to selectively frame them against foregrounds that I thought would be very complementary, either from a, you know, a, 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 you know, objective interpretation of the scene being rendered or just the way that the lines and curves in the sky, the dust lanes and things were complementary, complementing the arrangement of objects in the foreground. You know, there's any kind of level of, of, of thought going into, you know, how you interpret a composition, but, but there was just all this low hanging fruit, all these cool objects out there that were not the Milky Way and afforded different perspectives and didn't require the super wide angle kind of over, almost overdone now, uh, 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 aesthetic, right, within the night photography genre. Not to say that I, I, I look down on that kind of photography, because quite frankly, I feel like I still haven't paid my dues doing a lot of really compelling compositional work with just your simple Milky Way, right? Uh, I, I've, I've developed a niche in, in deepscapes that uh, has almost pulled me away from learning some of the more traditional tools that photographers use uh, with, with wider angle perspectives to really draw a viewer into a scene. And so um, I, I'm actually trying to de-emphasize deepscapes a little bit and focus a little more on the fundamentals. So. so with night, you know, night sky being somewhat of an abstraction, you know, like we can't literally experience looking at Andromeda at 200 millimeters, right? I'm curious, and I know I'm going to take heat for this question, <laughs> but Seriously, though, why not just capture Andromeda from anywhere mm -hmm. and you, you know where it's going to be over Engineer Mountain or whatever? Why not just go capture Engineer Mountain when the conditions are right? The weather's a little bit warmer. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a little bit more convenient for your family situation. <laughs> why not take that photo, combine it with an Andromeda photo from closer to home mm -hmm. and pass it off as, as the same thing. What, what's no, the difference? That's a really good question. And I, I think that's just a matter of personal preference. I, I think the authenticity of the experience is what drew me to it. The, the knowledge that these scenes exist out there. You know, I, what I think is really interesting about deepscapes is that, is that basically, you know, every year, the earth passes the same part of its orbit, you know, at any given time of year. So April 1st this year tends to look like April 1st of last year. And so if you miss an opportunity, you can just wait another year and it'll happen at the same time of night um, on the same day, more or less, you know, leap years notwithstanding. So, so, but what's really cool, I think about deepscapes is that when you find a composition that works and it's real and it's authentic, there's something suddenly special about that spot you're standing. This is the spot, right, where a place like Andromeda, this, this island universe, you know, millions of light years away, happens to line up with something that I cherish, like a, a beautiful mountain range or, a, you know, a, a, a really compelling, you know, tree at a nature preserve, um, you know, any kind of, any kind of composition that, that 
we find moving right in 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 photography right when you find the scene that works and it's got this this perfect alignment with something so beautiful out there in the cosmos it makes that spot you're standing feel so much more special and that's that's you know it's the challenge of getting that authentic scene and rendering it in what i consider to be an authentic way uh that draws me to it and so sure i could i could make that i could replicate that in an artificial sense but that takes the challenge out of it, that takes the satisfaction out of it, and it removes that special component of actually knowing when I was standing in this spot that um, all of these things came into alignment. You know, people, uh, some people assign a lot of value when planets align, right? And we just had a really cool conjunction of, of Saturn and Jupiter earlier this year. Uh, and, and that was you know, really you could, cool. Yeah, you yeah. can <laughs> see it right next to each other, right? That was super cool. And, and, and people find that fascinating when things line up. Right. And deepscapes are just another example of that. Here's a spot I can stand that might be totally on, you know, there's a spot in the desert in a national monument close to here where an exploded supernova, the remnants of an exploded supernova called the Veil Nebula happens to line up with this very isolated tree surrounded by desolation. And I, I put together a composition and tried to figure out in the field with it still being daylight, you know, I'm looking at this grainy map in, in my, in, in my app planet you know, grainy satellite view, and there's no points of reference around me. And I'm trying to figure out in this very brushy environment, am I standing by the right patch of brush so that in like three or four hours, the veil nebula is going to set over this tree from exactly where I'm standing. And I, I, I sweated over this for like an hour and, uh, and finally committed. And, and it ended up being, you know, the, the right place to be standing. And sure, I could have rendered that scene some other way, and maybe it would have gotten just as many likes on Instagram, and and uh, and and I could have, you know, you brought up this idea of passing it off, right? Not being honest about not being honest about the experience or the process that went into making the photo. I could have done that, but that's disingenuous, and it takes the fun and the challenge out of it. And then I and then I wouldn't have come across this realization that this little unassuming patch of what will soon become a tumbleweed in the middle of nowhere is actually very special because if you stand there, then any, you know, at any given time throughout the year, the exploded remains of a supernova are going to set right in front of you, right over this really beautiful tree. So I don't know. It's that, it's that attachment you get to the location and it doesn't even have to be a pretty location when you're shooting at a telephoto length, right? You've got some separation from your subject. You might be standing in the parking lot of a McDonald's, right? Uh, in, in a, you know, in some, <laughs> right, right, right. in some mountain town. Right. And, and suddenly that spot in the parking lot is really special. Uh, I actually shot the space station crossing in front of the sun in, in a, a little town east of Albuquerque. And I was outside someone's property. There was a bunch of farm properties and I was kind of off to the side of their driveway. And it just, it's where I needed to be to capture uh, uh, the space station passing in front of the sun. And I had this hydrogen alpha telescope I borrowed from, uh, uh, from the astronomy club. So I was getting like, I had the intention of getting solar flares and all this stuff and a spaceship moving in front of it. And I thought I was standing on public land, but the homeowner eventually came out and was really agitated, you know, and I, I felt terrible to have disturbed somebody, you know, near their property. And he came out and, you know, he said, you're on my land. What are you doing? You know, granted, I'm, I'm in the shoulder on the side of the road to the left of his driveway. But I, I tried to tell him, you know, as calmly as I could, this spot right here is extremely special. And let me show you the back of my camera to show you why. Like only from this spot could I have witnessed, you know, humanity's greatest spacefaring achievement moving in front of the sun at this precise moment. And, uh, and I wound up, you know, I gave my contact information. I wound up hearing from his wife later and she was just so intrigued 
by what I had witnessed and wanted, wanted to see the final product and was, you know, and was grateful to have initiated that communication. So what started off as a very tense exchange wound up becoming, you know, this bonding experience over there's something very special about your property or what I, the shoulder on a highway next to your property, right? That it was the one place you had to be to see this amazing celestial event going down. So <laughs> that's why I like mm. Deepscapes. I love that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's awesome. And I, I love that. I love that you're, I really appreciate your explanation about your relationship with the moment mm-hmm. and that particular spot on earth. Right. Yeah. And I think there is just something to be said for that, you know? Yeah. I mean, let's be real. You know, photography was born out of this notion of capturing a moment in time and any trick that I use to render a final image that it, you know causes the time over which that image was acquired to be more than just a moment in time is solely born out of necessity. I'm only doing this because there's no other way to do this without it. Unless I had some like F 0.1 lens that somehow also had infinite depth of field, right? And could connect enough light and had a big enough aperture that I could get all this in one shot. There's just no other way I can render this scene without pulling some extra tools out of the out of the out of the toolbox, right? And so, uh, but everything I try to do is still a moment, right? I, I am compositing data from from multiple moments in time, but it's always trying to render a particular moment that that I that I knew was going to happen and uh, and 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 transpired as I saw it, or at least as my camera saw it. So that that drive for authenticity, for you know. Sh- living the experience that's conveyed in some way in your final image, I think, uh, you know, at least to me is very important. I think to a lot of photographers is very important. I don't think it's the only way to conduct yourself in this genre. Uh, and I think it can be incredibly gratifying to put together something that's very aesthetically pleasing, but pulls from multiple moments, but it is one step removed from this moment in time, experiential, uh, sort of foundation that I think photography you know, was, was, was born trying to, uh, enable, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I think it boils down to kind of what you value as a person. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, I like pretty things. I like things that I enjoy looking at. I like, uh, you know, I like feeling like I got to witness something that, that might've gone unappreciated had I not been standing in some spot subjecting myself potentially to, you know, cold temperatures or, or a really annoying workflow uh, or, or what have you, you know, just that, that, that special moment needed to be documented, um, and captured and not, maybe not just documented, documented takes, removes some of the, the creative artistic part from it. Right. Like I don't just go out and Hey, you know, Andromeda is rising over this, this, uh, this hill. So let's go shoot it. You know, I, I think there is still this fundamental element in trying to put together these kinds of images where you want it to, to, um, you want it to be pleasing. You want it to make sense on some intuitive level. You want it to flow. Um, you want it to have those attributes that, that make a good photograph, a compelling photograph. And I'll tell you that the exhausting thing about deepscapes or even just about night photography in general is this notion that, um, you know, if the sky is going to be part of your image, a main subject in your image, then you kind of have to be looking a certain direction and standing in a certain place. And that starts boxing you in boxing in your compositional options. And so you have to learn how to still be intuitive and spontaneous and creative in this more restricted environment uh, to to render a a true scene. 
Or you could just go off in some other direction and say, I'm going to shoot the Milky Way, but I'm going to turn around and look at what's behind me because it's it's a much more interesting foreground composition, right? You could go that way. Um, and maybe the digital art you create as a result resonates more with your average viewer, but but you are forfeiting a degree of authenticity and degree of that, a degree of that experiential nature of that of that moment, right? <laughs> oh, Paul, you're trying to pull me in. It's like Godfather Three. It's like every time I try to get <laughs> well, I, out, I, they pull me back in. I told you, man, this was all a ruse. Uh, you know, we're gonna have to go out and, and shoot tonight stuff. But, but you know, I'll also say that. I have immense respect for, you know, landscape photography. And I, I will be the first to admit that if you stuck me out in a really, you know, beautiful, compositionally, compositionally rich area in broad daylight, I would struggle. You know, I think as photographers who are working on a limited time budget, if you want to, if you want to, you know, develop your skills and develop your intuitions and hone your craft, sometimes focus and narrow focus and expertise becomes a necessity. I mean, this is how it works in science. You can't be a master of everything, uh, at least not right off the bat. So sometimes you have to really drill down and focus and develop expertise to be able to contribute something. And so, uh, and so kind of necessity and circumstances and fascination and intrigue all drove me to night photography, but I will struggle with daytime scenes the few times that I'm presented with opportunities because I haven't worked those muscles and it's not the same. You know, you are in a more unrestricted space. You've got more options and sometimes an abundance of options makes it harder to focus and really, you know, listen to what the scene's telling you. So, uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot. You know what they say? You know what they say, Paul? Yeah. There's there's rich there's riches and niches. <laughs> I never, never actually heard that, but I'm stealing it. Uh, but, I, you know, I hope you don't mind. It's I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that in a scientific talk and give it to a scientific audience and see how see how it's received. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then tie it to plasma and, and, and nuclear fusion and oh, how, yeah. yep, you're saving the world. Yeah. No, this is this will be the title of my next uh, conference presentation. There's riches and niches. <laughs> <laughs> as long no, as you, no. you know. But, <laughs> there's a there's a lot a lot to be learned, right? And so that that's that's I think maybe one of the things I was hoping would come out of this conversation is just this idea that you know the light is different at night, and your compositional options are different at night, and your ability to react to the moment is different at night because moments pass more slowly, they're less obvious, uh, and and they can become more visually complex if you're not careful. And I know sim simplicity is something that you know tends to be a one of those fundamental tenets that folks embrace in, in photography, but there is a richness to it. And, and, well, and there is a way to operate right creatively in that environment where you can apply tactics that would work uh, in, in, in daytime light. And I think it goes both ways, right? I think there's, there's elements from night photography, technical and, and creative that, that transition uh, well, right. To daytime photography, but they are non over there. They have modest overlap. The Venn diagrams are not perfectly overlapping. And so, a night photographer could easily find himself or herself out of their element during the day and vice versa. And, and you just kind of have to play around with both, I think, to, uh, you know, to, to really move forward. Well, I mean, I, I think that's why we see so much composite work in night photography is because to do it in a more straight, narrow, authentic way is 
it's almost, I mean, to do it really well is almost impossible unless you have an incredible amount of time, you know, to do it at a very, very high level consistently. Sure. sure. And, um, and patience. And I think that's why yeah. we see, yeah, patience, effort, planning. There's, there's just so much that goes into creating that level of work at a high level over and over again that I think, um, I think most people that try realize very quickly that it's, it's really hard. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's why we start seeing, you know, these shortcuts like, well, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna create it. Yeah. Yeah. There, you know, there's, there's folks that honestly could be perfectly content with just shooting the Milky way with, with nothing but a thin, you know, pencil thin bit of land beneath it and be just dumb, you know, dumbfounded awestruck by what they see on the back of their camera and they're, they're satisfied. Right. And then there's maybe, uh, you know, people who want to take it further and, and try to, you know, make an image and not just take a picture, uh, make an image that, that is compelling. And yeah, that frustration can certainly, if you expect a lot of rewards right up front, that frustration can kick in, um, you know, pretty quickly. And for some that might inspire people to take shortcuts, uh, for some, it might, you know, turn them off from the genre entirely, and for some, it'll just, you know, light a fire under them to dig in and, uh, and, and work at it until, yeah. it, you know, until, yeah, until they get it. Obsess. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. and I'll, I'll admit, I, I, no, obsess. I, I obsess totally. about this stuff, man. And, uh, you know, I enjoy it, but I, I will say like, I am tempted more often nowadays to leave my telephoto lens at home because I know there is an additional layer of work, both in the field and after the shoot in the, in post-processing that that kind of image is going to, you know, wreak upon me. And so, uh, you know, I am finding myself more often these days wanting to just get, bring one wide angle lens and just go out in a space and just enjoy it, enjoy it at the day, during the day, scout some compositions, be, be far less premeditated about things and, and then hang around at night and, and get the shots and, uh, and just enjoy the experience and, and feel like I'm growing in a new direction. So, uh, you know, I'm not here to say deepscapes are the, uh, you know, the be all end all, or they're the one new way to, to, to break ground at night photography. It's, it's more that they're just another, another way of expressing yourself and capturing these really interesting celestial juxtapositions in a true authentic way that I think will resonate with people and, and, uh, what you choose to do, you know, the scene is going to dictate it, your mood's going to dictate it. Uh, what you're willing to do after the shoot, how much time you want to spend in post might dictate it. And, and, uh, and that's all good, right? That's our, that's our constant toil as photographers, just deciding what's worth our time and attention, what, what captures, captures us and, and warrants our focus. So are you, are, are you going to start gonna jumping do- into it more? <laughs> can we, uh, can, can we get together for a shoot? <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot. No, I mean, I, um, <laughs> I did some night shooting a couple of months ago. Nice. Or I guess about a month ago now, but uh Oh yeah, I know I you know, saw it. It's interesting was, though. You were at a sick It candy, is interesting man. though, like yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, it's you know, I, I didn't pre pre visualize that any of that. I was just I knew I wanted to camp somewhere in that area with my wife and my son and we just showed up to this campsite and you know, I explored it and I was like, Oh, I like the way that the river canyon curves in this way and I wonder where the Milky Way is going to be. And I just, you know, shot it. It wasn't mm-hmm. pre-visualized at all. So, But it 
going back to what you were saying, you know, a lot of this I think comes comes down to human behavior and motivation. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you were to think about like a good analogy for me is the work world, right? Like if if you could make a million dollars, but it took you twenty years of hard work, or you could make a million dollars and you could just go like push a button <laughs> and there's no consequences, which one would most people pick? Right? Sure. And I th- honestly I feel like that's kind of the the best analogy for what we're seeing in photography nowadays is like, well, if I can just do it like this and it's easier, why not? You know? And um I think that's yeah. unfortunate. Um yeah. and I think what you said earlier about the experience and the knowledge of knowing that like this is actually something that I experienced and I was able to partake in and you know, knowing that this little patch of grass <laughs> I think that there's something to be said to that that I don't think um, a lot of people can appreciate fully. Sure. Well, and and I I would venture to guess, and, and you you'd have to you have to do like a proper study to figure it out. But I would venture to guess that the the oh, if you average over all of the what we would call I guess composited scenes, and you and you try to you know featureize them, you try to say here are the you know the common aesthetic features uh, that characterize these images, and you start binning them up you will probably find that, you know, composited scenes tend to have less diversity in terms of how they're composed and how they're presented aesthetically than natural scenes. Because when you composite a scene, you are precisely arranging things in ways that kind of stuff naturally lines up, right? Uh, Lines naturally line up or the Milky Way's front and center. Mm -hmm unnaturally (laughs) well but naturally in a way that makes you know compositional sense right and so you're going to find a lot of a lot of scenes that tend to have very similar features when you're out in nature trying to capture a real scene as you perceived it as it presented itself from where you're standing you know nature's going to do what it wants to do and and even if you don't wind up with a perfect composition in the end you wind up with something more unique right uh and and if you if you do that same study and you featureize all of the authentic, you know, single perspective images, I guarantee you, you're going to find more visual diversity, aesthetic diversity and compositional diversity amongst those pictures. And that kind of makes that sort of enterprise more rewarding because it's more rich, it's more diverse. And it's got this added benefit of the person who took that, that image really witnessed that event from that spot and, uh, and, and, and took the time and effort to, to make it real and to, and to immortalize it right in, in an image, in a photograph. So yeah, well, easy, easy is not always the, the best way to, to, you know, the most creative work, I guess. Yeah. Well, for the 10 people that haven't already thrown their, their phone out the window or <laughs> sent already, already unsubscribed or, you know, sent me an email that was negative about your opinions or my opinions, I would love to hear, and they might love to hear, who you would recommend for the podcast. Who are some people that inspire you? Absolutely, yeah. So, um, so the the first person I really think would 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 be a great guest on your podcast is Scott Aspinall, and he's a Canadian photographer. Um, you know, any anyone who's on some of the main night photography Facebook forums probably recognize his name. He's a pretty frequent contributor there, um, but. What I love about Scott, he, he's a good friend. He's a, he's a really fun guy to, to talk to, um, but he's kind of a jack of all trades. He can deepscape as good or better than me. 
but his, you know, daytime landscape work and his ability to do abstracts and grand scenics and, and in particular his, uh, the way he approaches color, um, you know, he's kind of been a mentor to me to try to color for me is still kind of a nebulous topic, really learning how to, how to make the palette uh, a real central part of, uh, and deliberate part of a composition. Um, you know, I'm still working on it, but he's given me a lot of pointers. So, so there's, you know, an immense bucket of wisdom that he's got to share that spans all forms of landscape photography. So I, I really love Scott and think he'd be great on your, sh- on your, on your podcast. Uh, the second person, um, is Mary Beth Kaczynski and she, I, I, if I could, you know, cease being myself for a little while and, and be someone else photographically, I'd want to be her. You know, I, I, I feel like she just, <laughs> she's just this fearless photographer that, you know, the technical stuff doesn't scare her away from anything. And she's got such a great sense of composition and light. She shoots at day, she shoots at night, she shoots wide, she shoots long. Uh, you know, some of, some of her deep scapes are quite frankly, uh, you know, some of the best that are out there. And, uh, and she's explored just so much terrain through her, through her, through her job that, you know, she's had this ability to, to just render all, all different parts of, of the world in, in really, you know, unique ways. So I, I really love Mary Beth's work. I'd love to hear from her on your podcast and kind of get inside her mind a little bit and figure I, out what makes I, her tick. Uh, from what I understand, she only requires two hours of sleep a day. <laughs> yeah. That's like me, uh, maybe 10 years that's what ago. I've heard. <laughs> I don't know. How you, I don't know how you can do it. Um, yeah. So Mary Beth would be great. Uh, another guy um, is Adrian Mutui and he's, uh, you know, he's based in Norway and, you know, I would say is one of the, one of the people at the forefront of, of Aurora photography. I don't know how many, you know, Aurora specialists you've had in the past. I'm not, I'm not, no, nobody in particular is ringing a bell. And, and Adrian's a guy who, you know, is spending his life right now, uh, you know, he's got a scientific background. He, uh, you know, he studies the Aurora, but he also, you know, shoots it in all kinds of different situations and has this gorgeous, you know, backdrop in, in Norway. Uh, and so he would be an interesting person to, to, you know, get into the fundamentals of how exactly you can go chase Aurora and, and do that sort of photography. Um, so uh, uh, another person I suggest is uh, not in the night photography community. His name is uh, Yasin Todorov. And he was the uh, 2018 Nat Geo Photo Contest Grand Prize winner. Uh, and his his genre, you know, he, he's a pilot. He's actually also a professor of violin, you know, really accomplished violinist. But he uh, he's a p- pilot as well and does uh, most of his photography from the sky. And I and I feel like, you know, in, we're living in the age of, of drone photography and aerial photography, right? And it's really got momentum behind it. And, you know hearing from a person who has really honed his craft at much higher altitudes, right. And has learned to, to uh, develop a voice and an aesthetic that takes this even grander perspective over the landscape. Uh, you know, he'd have some really interesting insights to off, author offer, you know, and, and being part of the, he's, he is part of the Nat Geo community. And I, I'm just insanely curious to know what it's like you know that's just you know it's such a it's such hallowed ground for photographers but they've also got these you know tremendously high standards for what they consider you know um real and authentic and and publishable so i you know talking to someone in that community would be would be interesting to just hear their perspective on why nat geo sees the world the way they do 
Uh, and then finally, uh, I wanted to give a shout out to a, a, a guy in my own backyard, Colin Sillerud, uh, or Sillerud, I'm actually not sure uh, the right way to pronounce his last name, but Colin's a really great guy. And, and if I had to describe his work in a nutshell, it's, it's just, when I look at his images, they make me happy. And they, and they, and they also make me, you know, just, just dumbstruck with, with, with amazement, you know, the kind of scenes he's captured. So he does a lot of aerial photography, a lot of ground-based landscape photography, day, night, you know, he's one of those people that just goes out and lets the, lets the environment speak to him and captures some really amazing scenes. He's, he embraces the, you know, um, uh, inclement weather and, and unsavory, you know, uh, atmospheric elements because they're going to make the shot better and they're going to lead to a more profound experience. And so, uh, I always enjoy hearing from people like that too. So yeah, that's, that's who I would recommend. And, uh, yeah. and I, and once again, I'm, I'm really grateful just to have a chance to sit down and, and talk to you for a while, Matt. Of course. Yeah. I, um, I really like Colin's work as well. I've, uh, been appreciating his stuff for a while now and I've, I think it was maybe a year ago now he did some really interesting aerial work in the Southwest, which, caught the attention of me and some of my friends. Cause I don't know. I like, I like his stuff. It's, it's really nice. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure if, uh, uh, um, I don't know the name of the rock formation, but you know, he got this beautiful spire with, I think with a it was, foggy foreground. Yeah. I think it was six shooter peak. Six shooter peak. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just I surrounded so. by fog, you know, um, it's really nice. It's super cool, you know, and, and, yeah, and you, you had to go and there. He, and he also, I, I I feel like he did some maybe like Cessna flights or something over like Canyonlands um, okay. and did some really interesting work over Canyonlands, which, you know, it's a pretty rare aerial perspective that I don't think a lot of people have taken advantage of um, from an airplane. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting stuff. So yeah, yeah I'm, that, glad that, you, I'm glad you brought him up. That's super cool. And, you know, his dedication to his craft is just all the more impressive when you I just realized recently he's uh, the the VP of engineering at a solar company based out of Albuquerque, you know, so he's another, uh, you know, technical nerd like me who's nice. got, uh, you know, I'm sure a, a pretty stressful day job and, and lots of other stuff to worry about. And it, I, I just, uh, you know, being able to separate from that and go out and pursue this thing full force is just, uh, I, I respect that drive. I just wish I had more time to do it myself. Um, but just finding ways people cope with, you know, their own situations and find a way to, uh, to create, you know, to create new works and be part of this community in spite of everything else going on in their lives, yourself included, you know, you're, you're double and triple booked in so many different ways. It's, it's kind of mind blowing, but it's, uh, it's, it's really cool to see how people, you know, find their voice and develop their, uh, you know, their unique look and identity when they've got so much other stuff to factor into. Yeah. Well, I mean, consider yourself part of that. I mean, I think that's why people enjoy these conversations is because it, it can be inspiring, you know, hearing people talk about the ways in which they've experienced the world. And I, I appreciate you contributing to that yourself with your voice. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. I hope I haven't scared anyone away, you know, from, uh, <laughs> yeah, you can get as technical as you want, right. To execute a shot, but I, I will still maintain you only do it if you have to, right. Just, you know, if you have that technical background and you get familiar enough with your equipment and some of the tricks you can use, then maybe it opens up more possibilities to capture moments that you wouldn't be able to capture otherwise. But don't don't over don't overcomplicate a shot just because you feel like you should. Right. Uh, 
you should still go after, you know, what you think is the most compelling scene that's standing in front of you. Um, so don't, don't be scared away from night photography for anyone listening, uh, that, uh, you know, just because you think it might take months of planning and hours of execution and, you know, a week or more post-processing to generate an image. That's not, that's not the point. You know, the point is to, to render some authentic scene that you witnessed and you thought was beautiful and that maybe brings some new aesthetic, uh, 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 you know, element to the scene and, uh, and then go out and capture it. And if it doesn't work, the nice thing about the night sky is you'll yeah, get another, I've, you'll get another try. I feel like the, the technical stuff and the tools is, is no different than, you know, like a, a painter who's discovered a different type of paint or something. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, there is not, not to drone on about science, right. But there is this phenomenon of people who develop, you know, who over, you know, overdevelop expertise to the point where they're unwilling to do anything else. And I've, I've encountered people like that and heard about people like that. And, and, you know, the long and short of that is they're, they're a hammer that goes out looking for nails. Right. And, and that boxes them into a corner and it limits what they can do and, and often limits the, uh, you know, the ultimate impact that they're going to make on their field because they're unwilling to try something else that's not in their wheelhouse. And so you can over-specialize to the point where you only see the, the world through a certain focal length and a certain perspective and a certain set of techniques. Um, and that's not the point of this. The point is, you know, dabbling in new ideas, new techniques, um, just opens up more doors, opens, opens up more possibilities and gets your mind to kind of expand a bit and say, well, I don't necessarily just have to sit here and shoot the Milky Way. I could, I could go to a really amazing spot that means a lot to me and, and find some totally new perspective that, especially if it's not an iconic spot, I guarantee you no one's ever done before. No one's ever seen it portrayed in that way. And, and that might bring someone a lot of satisfaction, a lot of personal happiness and, and meaning. So, you know, hopefully some of that came out of this conversation that <clears throat> there's just a lot of ways to, to view the world around you. And, and I don't think night photography is done. I don't think people have tried everything they can try. And, uh, and the same goes for what we do during the daytime. We're all, we're all just little creative creatures uh, bouncing around and slowly expanding that boundary outward and outward. <laughs> I love it. Well, thanks again to Paul for joining on the podcast today and keep up the amazing work. I'm always amazed when people can carve out time away from their busy lives to create some amazing artwork. Please check out Paul's amazing work by visiting the show notes or his website at paulschmidtphotography.com. Also, I wanted to remind listeners that we have a club over on Clubhouse, the popular audio-based social media app. On our club, we have weekly after parties on Fridays hosted by listeners. The idea is to provide a platform for listeners to engage with each other after each show to have a conversation. And I promise that on occasion, both me and the guests will make appearances as well. So if that sort of thing interests you, search for our club on Clubhouse or look for the link in the show notes. I'd also like to take a moment to thank a couple of our newest patrons. Thanks to Jimmy Arcade and Zachary Peckler for your generous support of the show on Patreon. It really does help keep me motivated to produce new episodes for all of you. And you too can support the show by going to patreon.com forward slash fstop and listen. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week. <laughs>